You're listening to the College Age Movement Podcast. What is going on, guys? Hope that you're doing fantastic this week. We are starting a new series entitled The Worship Playlist. The idea behind the series is to take uh, several worship songs that we sing on a regular basis at College Age, maybe some that we don't, and we are going to walk through the inspiration behind the songs. We are going to look at scripture behind songs. We're going to look at all kinds of stuff, and we're going to try to pull some points out that would make uh, points that are relevant for us today. This week, we're going to walk through a song that that many of you are probably familiar with. If you come to college age, if you've been to college age, if you've been um, in any kind of church that that sings uh, contemporary worship in the last probably five or six years, you've heard the song Sinking Deep by Hillsong Young and Free. And I'm not going to walk through every single lyric, but what I want to do is I want to look at a couple parts of that song and dive in and pull out some points. So the first phrase that I want to look at from the song says this. It says, standing here in your presence in a grace so relentless, I am one, oh, by perfect love. I am one by perfect love. John chapter 16, verse 33 says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, without a doubt, everyone that is listening to this has experienced trial and tribulation. There have been times in your life where you understand that life right now is not all sunshine and rainbows. And and maybe you haven't. Maybe up to this point, everything has been great. I'm sure that there's been something small at least. But you know that, that, that life forever will not always be perfect. However, there are certain seasons where it truly feels like everything is against us. I think we could even argue that our world currently as it stands today could feel a little out of control and like everything is piling up on us. A pandemic, racial tensions, mass shootings, and more, it can get a little overwhelming. But but this is what's amazing. As Jesus is speaking to the disciples, the disciples are dealing with stress and anxiety. They, they are dealing with the, the burden that is coming with so many people coming and following Jesus, which means that they have a ton of people to pastor and take care of and all of these different things that are happening. They're feeling stress. They're feeling anxiety. They're feeling overwhelmed. They're feeling like their personal world is piling up on them. And Jesus says, take heart for I have overcome the world. So the first point this week is simply this. He is bigger. He is bigger. Jesus is speaking to the disciples in this verse, and he is trying to communicate to them specifically, take heart, take heart, take heart. I am, I have overcome the world. The world is out of control sometimes, but I have overcome the world. And he wants to communicate that exact same thing to us today. So a question for us would be, do we actually believe him? That when Jesus says, I am bigger, I have overcome the world, do we believe him? Are we able to look at our world and truly believe that Jesus is bigger than anything that in our own personal world is happening or that in the world in, in, in its massive chaotic state, do we believe that Jesus is bigger than that as well? Remember, these are the actual words of Jesus, right? This isn't, this isn't somebody else. This is Jesus speaking directly to his disciples. And they are words that we need to take to heart because 
we believe that Jesus is who he said he is. There's actually this this line of thinking. C.S. Lewis made it popular. It wasn't him. It was actually a, a pastor in Scotland, I believe, uh, many years before C.S. Lewis. But C.S. Lewis kind of popularized this idea of the trilemma. And this this would be the simplest way to put it, that, that C.S. Lewis would say, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was the Lord. A liar, a lunatic, or he was the Lord. So as Jesus is speaking words, like these are the letters in red. If you have a Bible that, that has the letters, the words of Jesus in red in your Bible, like these are those, these are the red letters. Like these, this is something that Jesus specifically said. And so as we look at those words, we can look at that with, with a lens of saying, okay, if I look at this, do I believe that Jesus is a liar? Do I believe that, that he has not actually overcome the world? That, that he is just sm- blowing smoke up our butts? Or is Jesus a lunatic? Does he actually believe this about himself, but was he absolutely out of his mind? Or do I believe that Jesus is the Messiah? That Jesus is the Lord? Here's where this comes into play. That for, for centuries and centuries and centuries, millennia at this point, People were like, yeah, Jesus was a great moral teacher, but we don't actually believe that he was the son of God. And people will probably, you've probably heard that argument today that like, oh no, he was like a great guy, great moral teacher. But here, here's the, the trilemma, right? The dilemma is that if that is true, then he was either, if he was just a moral teacher and he was not the Lord, then he was lying to people. He was saying that he was the son of God and he was garnering attention. He was garnering followers. He fully understood that he was not the son of God, but he was teaching great morals and he was lying to people about the biggest part. Or he was crazy. He was absolutely insane. He said he was the son of God, absolute looney tune, but the, the teaching was moral. Or he was Jesus, the Messiah, and he is actually the Lord because you can't, you can't say like he was a good moral teacher, a good guy, and he wasn't a liar or a lunatic. Like you have, you have to say like he either is who he said he was, or he was pulling the, the sheet over our eyes in one way or another. But for those of us who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of God, that he is a part of the father and the Holy spirit, like we have to look at that and say, okay, if I believe that, the biggest part of this, then I actually have to believe the words that he speaks, right? If I believe that he, if he, if I believe that he's the son of God, then I have to believe the words that he speaks. So when he says, I have overcome the world, if I believe that he, when he says, I am the savior, I am the son of God, I believe that, then I must believe him when he says, I have overcome the world. So we, as followers of Jesus, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, we have to have the understanding that he has overcome the world. He is bigger. He has won. And for so many of us speaking in generalities, is kind of easy. We can say, yes, I believe that Jesus has won the world. Jesus has won all of the things out there. But for many of us, we are unwilling to believe that he has actually won us, that he has won our hearts, that he has won our spirits, that he has won ourselves. Because we might be individually messier than the world is, right? Like we look at the world and we're like, yeah, that is a dumpster fire. But we look at our own lives and we're like, it might be messier internally in my life than it is in the world. Like we we know our thoughts, we know our actions, we know everything that's going on with the messiness and the brokenness. And so we can say, I, I will accept the fact that Jesus has won the world, but I have a really hard time coming to grips that his perfect love actually won me. You see Titus chapter 2 verses 13 through 14 says while we were the while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people this is important that are his very own a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. Uh, many translations would say this and this is our next point 
is that we are his prized possession. That the people that are his very own are his prized possession. And for a lot of us, that's really hard for us to believe, right? Like we, we, we have a hard time coming to grips with where Jesus is prized possession. But time and time again, scripture makes it really, really clear that Jesus did not go to the cross. He did not go purchase us and redeem us from all wickedness and to purify us begrudgingly, but lovingly. Jesus went to the cross, not begrudgingly, but lovingly. We have to understand that. That as Jesus carried his cross to Golgotha, as he walked that, he was not angry with us. He was full of compassion and forgiveness and love for us. No one forced him to the cross. The Roman centurions might have thought they were, but he had this plan from the very beginning. This is how he was going to redeem and purify us from all wickedness, from all of our own sin. And he's going to purchase us as his prized possession and that we would be in response eager to do what is good. Romans chapter 8 verses 35 through 39 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That love that that pushed him towards Golgotha. Shall, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We conquer because of his love. For I'm convinced For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God, the love that he took to the cross, not begrudgingly, but lovingly. I'm not going to sit here and try to convince you with my own word, on own words that Jesus adores you, because I believe that he told you and I very, very clearly how much he loves us. When he went to the cross, the next phrase of the song sinking deep that I want to look at says, I'm wide awake, drawing close, stirred by grace and all my heart is yours. Luke chapter 12 verses 35 through 36, be dressed, ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. So then let us not be like the others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Let us be alert and clear-minded. Awake and sober. So the next question, are we alert and ready? Are we alert and ready? Are we wide awake? <laughs> if we say I'm wide awake, are we actually wide awake? If, if Jesus was to ask something of us today, would we be people who are ready to jump in to action? I think that is such a challenging question because many of us don't prepare until after we know the ask, right? We want to know the end goal. We want to know what it is that we are preparing for, but rarely are we going to get that much clarity. Rarely are we going to know the exact thing. Maybe you've heard of the the race. It's a 5K. It's called the Dirty Dash. And I am not a runner at all. The only 5K I have ever done was the Dirty Dash. And I had a couple buddies who were like, hey, we should do this. And I was like, nah, I don't want to run. I hate running. And they're like, no, it's super fun. There's like obstacles and it's like mud everywhere. And it's like it's just like a fun. It's not like super competitive. And I was like, okay, well, I'm super competitive. So they're like, this is, this is, I was like, well, what do you know about it? And like, this is all we know is that it's a 5K. And that there's obstacles. And I said, well, what are the obstacles? And they're like, we have no idea. I was like, okay, great. So I, I prepared in only the way that I knew is that I needed to run. I needed to get my endurance up. I needed to prepare for a race. 
and also understand that there's going to be obstacles along the way. And it ended up being like one of the most fun experiences I've ever had. You don't barely even feel like you're running like a five, like some of you are like, I run 5k in my sleep, like stop. And I was like, I know, but I don't. And so like, I was like, I don't know if I can even run a 5k. I didn't even feel like I was running. It was so much fun. There was so much mud. I got so much mud in my eyes. I think I actually ended up getting, I don't know if it was actual pink eye, but I just had mud in my eye for like days. And it was, that was, that part was probably the worst part, but it was so much fun. But I was able to prepare in only one specific way. Cause I didn't know every obstacle and everything that was going to come my way. So for us as followers of Jesus in our walk with Jesus in our calling, what do we know about our calling? We know that Jesus has asked us to be disciples. He's also asked us to go and make disciples. We aren't always going to know every single obstacle and every single challenge that comes along with that calling. And there are going to be smaller callings in certain seasons of life. And we're not always going to know. But what we do know is this. If we prepare as disciples and we make disciples, we are going to be prepared for certain things. Because as, as we prepare to be a disciple, you're working on your spiritual dis- disciplines. You're working on prayer. You're working on fasting. You're working on, on uh, interpersonal communication, on scripture reading, all those different things. And if you are diligent, if I am diligent in doing those things, then when certain circumstances arise, we will inevitably be prepared. So would we be alert and ready so that when Jesus shows up, no matter what the ask is, we're like, ah, I, w- I would have loved to know that exact thing for years and then be like super, super prepared for that specific thing. Not always how it's going to work. So just be prepared in your heart, in your mind, and-, and surround yourself with people who are pursuing Jesus and help disciple people who are pursuing Jesus. That's how we prepare. That's how we are alert. That's how we're ready. So when Jesus comes back, not, 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 see, this is, this is what's really interesting. As I read this verse when I was a kid and, and people were like, be ready for when Jesus comes back. I was always like, or, or for when Jesus shows up, I was like, oh, that's like the end times. Like I want to be saved. So like, I would like ask for forgiveness and like raise my hand in church and, and like dedicate my life to Jesus like every weekend. Cause I was terrified that it didn't work the last time. And so I would be prepared that when Jesus came back, I was ready to go to heaven with him. But I don't think that that's all that, that we're, hearing here as we're listening to this verse in Thessalonians as we're listening to this verse in Luke like I don't think it's just like hey just be ready so when Jesus wants to take you to heaven you get to go to heaven it's when Jesus shows up get ready to jump into action get ready to do what he's asking you to do so don't just be prepared for yourself be prepared for others so that the circumstances that you come up against and the obstacles you come up against will be a benefit to the people in your life and then I think the the three favorite words of this entire song sinking deep stirred by grace Man, so good, so good, stirred by grace, this idea. Philippians actually has this verse, and it says, God is doing a good work in you, and he's going to bring it to completion. He's doing something within you, and this idea of something stirring within our souls, within our spirits, and and my prayer is that as we are stirred by grace, we would be people who translate that grace, the grace of God in our own lives, into the grace of God for people around us, that we would be people who translate the love of God in our own lives, and we would show the love of God through that to the people in our own lives, that we would be people who translate the acceptance of God, the acceptance of us to God into the acceptance of other people to us, that that we would bring people closer to Jesus every single day. I think that we have to ask ourselves the question, like what does the realization of Christ's love for me ignite? What does it set ablaze within my soul? 
You see, when I fully understand the grace that Jesus has invited me into, it should stir something in me. Walking with Jesus should be the farthest thing from boring. I think that there's this lie out there that following Jesus is so monotonous because you're not quite quote unquote allowed to do very many things anymore. All of a sudden there's all these guardrails in your life, but nothing about following Jesus is boring. It is constantly exciting. It is constantly convicting. It is constantly setting something ablaze within us. We are being stirred by the grace of Jesus. Second Timothy verse one or chapter one, verse six says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, fan into flame, the gift of God. We have to be people who fan the flames in our own lives and in the lives of others. So what is God calling you towards? Who is God calling you towards? How can you encourage and equip other people? How, so how, how can you fan into flames the, the calling in your life, the, the, the stirring that is happening inside of you because of the grace of God? What can you do to fan into flames that thing? But also like help equip and help encourage people around you that as Jesus is doing a good work in them, as he is trying to bring something to completion, would you, would you step in? Would we step in in tandem to say, how can I fan into flames what God is calling you towards or what he's calling you to do? The last phrase that I want to look at from the song is, when I'm lost, you pursue me simple. When I'm lost, you pursue me. Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 through 13. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. So you, no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey, there has been a time, maybe in the past, uh, maybe in the current, maybe in the future, where you have or will feel lost. There have been times in your life, in my life, where we feel lost, but it is of the utmost importance that we understand that we serve a God who pursues. We serve a God who pursues. It can be so easy for us to convince ourselves that we are the ones who have to do all the pursuing, but that has never been the case. That is a, a man-made misconception that we are down here and that God is up there. Like, think about this. When Jesus steps onto the scene, he is ministering to, to three primary groups, Greeks, Romans, and Jews. It's all about temples. It's all about mountains. It's all about humans trying to strive and work towards God. To get into the presence of God, they have to physically step towards God. Now, do I believe that we need to bring everything before God? Yes, absolutely. Like, Do whatever we can to move towards Jesus. But what we have to understand is that Jesus made flesh, dwelled among us. That This was God who had come to man. That God set himself right in the middle of humanity, not expecting that people just go to him. But he came to us. You see, this this idea of God up there and us down here is is it's a lie. God has always been with us, and God has always pursued pursued us. Think about this. Think about the very first time the human beings sinned. We're we're sitting in the Garden of Eden. Okay, just picture yourself: Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve eat from the forbidden tree, and that is the first sin. It's the original sin. It, it's the the first thing that humans do in rebellion against God and they feel immediate shame and, and, and regret and they go and they hide. They realize that they're naked. They go and they hide. And the story doesn't go that Adam and Eve then have a really good conversation about how they need to be repentant before the Lord. And then they, they walk up a mountain to go talk to God about the thing that they do and admit to what they did. No, the story is this, is that as they are hiding, God comes walking through the garden and says, where are you? Where are you? He comes looking for them. 
from the very first, from the very beginning, God pursues us. God pursues us. So as we wrap up, this, this would be my encouragement. I, I would love for you to go find the song Sinking Deep. I would love for you to just take three minutes or however long the song is and just let it wash over you and worship with a little bit of perspective. First of all, bring things before the Lord. Whatever it is, whatever you need to bring before the Lord, whether it's a sin that you've been struggling with, maybe it's just praise, maybe it's thankfulness for what he's doing in your life, but bring it before the Lord and let the walls down. Let Jesus pursue you. This is this is what I love. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with that person and they with me. I stand at the door and knock. You see, we serve a God who does not knock down our doors. He does not force relationship upon us. He stands at the door and knocks. And he says, hey, if you just open the door, if you'd accept my pursuit, we're going we're gonna to see transformation in your life. You're going to see forgiveness in your life. You're going to see my grace and my mercy. So Jesus is standing at the door. He's been looking for you and he's knocking. Are you willing to open it? Thank you for listening to the College Age Movement podcast. College Age Movement's in-person gatherings meet Tuesday nights at 7, and we would love to have you there. If you are unable to join us in person, you can engage online at faithchapel.cc or follow us on our socials at collegeagemvmt.